In college, I majored in religious studies. Before my senior year, I spent the summer in Israel doing research on my thesis, which was on women in Jewish music. Simultaneously, I was in the throes of a full-on Jewish identity crisis. My roommate had become newly observant, and suddenly to her, Reform Judaism wasn't real Judaism. And on top of that, one of the women I had planned to study with in Israel canceled my interviews with her when she found out that my mother wasn't Jewish. I can only teach Torah to Jews, she announced. I now know enough to tell you that that is one of the least Jewish things a person can say. But as a young adult, it was devastating. I was in that state of mind that I went to the Kotel with a newly formed Women of the Wall, a group who helped establish a women's prayer space at one of the holiest sites in Israel. They all seemed to be super Jews, and they prayed a traditional service so quickly that I really couldn't follow along or keep up. And as a 20-year-old Korean Jew wearing pants, let's just say I stood out in the group. <laughs> but when they asked for al volunteers for an aliyah for the Torah service, I raised my hand. This was my big chance to show them I wasn't a stranger. I was Jewish too. I started to chant the blessing, but before I was even halfway through, I confused the words, even though I'd said that prayer a thousand times before. The women quickly corrected me, and I wanted to just disappear. And which words had eluded me? Asher bahar banu mikol ha'amim. Which means, you, God, have chosen us from all other peoples. You don't have to be Freud to analyze my slip-up. <clears throat> because in that moment, I didn't feel like I was one of the chosen people. I felt like an outsider. I was the other. Some of you may know exactly what that feels like. And even if you are quite secure in your Jewish identity, there may be no concept more unsettling and perhaps even embarrassing for the modern Jew than the idea of chosenness. In an age of increasing multiculturalism and diversity and intermarriage, thinking of ourselves as the chosen people seems unnecessarily exclusive and uncomfortably arrogant. Chosenness reeks of racial superiority or even supremacy. Unless we ask it as the question it is, chosen for what? Jews were not chosen to be better, but to make things better. We were chosen to uphold the traditions and teachings of our Torah with our own particular Jewish language and customs and chutzpah. Now in a world that is increasingly celebrating the universal, Embracing particularism can seem too narrow, too provincial, too 
tribal. But tribalism is not all bad. Human beings need our tribes, our families, our congregations, our sports teams, our sororities. Tribes give us a sense of identity and belonging. They give us roots and a community. They help us find our own unique place and purpose. We Jews need our tribe so we can know our story, so we can know who we are and what we were chosen to do. Chosenness is not about being chosen above others. Jews were chosen to be the other. What do I mean by that? Jews were chosen to be the other. Well, with apologies to Rabbi Hillel, if I had to sum up the entirety of the Jewish tradition while standing on one foot, I would say, you were a stranger. Therefore, love the stranger as yourself. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Our Jewish master narrative is a story of being strangers in Egypt, being captive and then freed. Not only do we retell this story every year at our Passover seders, the most beloved of rituals, but we remind ourselves every single day that we were a stranger in our regular liturgy. And every Friday night with our Kiddush, Zecher Litziyat Mitzrayim, and in countless laws in our Torah. On Yom Kippur afternoon, when we all gather together, we shall read these words. The strangers who live with you shall be to you like citizens, and you shall love them as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. But it's not just that we were strangers in the land of Egypt. We Jews have been strangers since the birth of Judaism. The very first Hebrews, Abraham and Sarah, were commanded by God, Lech Lecha, go forth from your native land, from your birthplace, to a place you do not know. God wouldn't allow Abraham and Sarah to start Judaism from the comfort of their hometown. They had to become immigrants. They had to be the other in order to start a religion of the other. And Moses, born of Hebrews, grew up a stranger in Pharaoh's palace only to launch us into history. In a proclamation of his being the other, he names one of his children Gershom, Gersham, which literally means, I was a stranger in that strange land. And Ruth, who is the exemplary Ger, a Moabite turned most famous convert, goes on to become the grandmother of the great King David and a mother in the line of the Messiah. And of course, the story of Jews as the other is not just biblical history. It's been our story throughout the ages. Jews have been and made our way through the lands everywhere from Babylon to Brooklyn. And we've survived the Crusades and the pogroms and the concentration camps. It is the backdrop of everything that we are. And while today 
Jews miraculously have a homeland in Israel, and we are more comfortable than ever here in America. We are commanded never to forget what it feels like to be unwelcome. We are mandated to recall being a stranger, not just as ancient history, but as our own personal memory in every generation. We are to taste the tears and eat the bread of affliction and ingest the experience of being a slave in our own bodies. We know Nefesh Hager, the soul of a stranger. And the force of that Jewish memory is a safeguard an ever-present caution against any feeling of superiority or bigotry or indifference. As Jews, we know what it feels like to be vulnerable and powerless. God chose the Jewish people as the archetypal stranger. Why? So that we would never forget that person behind the barbed wire, barricade, or checkpoint, that family forced to hide or run, that couple carrying everything they own on their backs, or more basically, those people of a different color, faith, or philosophy. We are mandated by our tradition to remember and to protect, and yes, even to love the stranger, because we are that stranger. This is what we were chosen for. It calls to mind a famous line from that other sacred Jewish text, Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> where Tevia says, Dear God, I know, I know we are the chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? <laughs> this responsibility of being chosen to be the other can feel like a heavy burden, and it is. But it is also precisely the reason that our little tribe has had such an outsized impact and influence on the entire world. David Logan, a professor at USC, has studied tribes for over a decade, and he describes tribal cultures as falling across a spectrum. All tribes are not the same. The most important variable determining whether or not a tribe is repulsive or revered is how they view and treat the other. In Professor Logan's hierarchy, tribes operating with a low-stage tribal culture feed on anger. They breed fear of the stranger. They build tribal cohesion by vilifying the other. And on the other end of the spectrum, the most venerated tribes are bound by something much larger than a common enemy, or fear, or even tribal pride. They embrace universal human greatness and potential. They understand that the fate of the other is inextricably tied to their own, that their mission is tied to that of all of human existence. These are the tribes that can change the world. And we were chosen to be one of those tribes. And we would welcome anyone 
who would choose to join us in that mission. The prophet Isaiah said, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant only to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the offspring only of Israel. You will be an or le goyim, a light to the nations, that my liberation will be to the ends of the earth. That is our tribe's purpose, to be a light to the nations. And right now, the first nation we need to be a light unto is our own, the United States of America. Our founding fathers, many of them immigrants themselves, imagined this country to be an exceptional tribe built on the principles of liberty and justice for all. John Winthrop, who was an early pilgrim, envisioned America as a shining city upon a hill, a beacon for the persecuted. He came to this country in a little wooden boat, like many of our ancestors, seeking religious freedom. But right now, America is in danger of forgetting our own history. There are voices raised in this country unlike any we've heard in years, preaching the very lowest forms of tribal behavior, romanticizing violence, fomenting distrust of every difference, and trying to convince our nation that we can only be great if we build walls. But the Statue of Liberty, the mother of exiles, proclaims our true mission. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Send these, the homeless tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Is it a coincidence that these words at the base of Lady Liberty were penned by Emma Lazarus, who was American-born, but also a Jew, who knew the heart of a stranger? Is it not our calling as American Jews, again at this moment, to be a light unto our nation? Consider this. Gallup conducted a survey of whether America should open its doors to 10,000 refugee children, innocents, caught in the crossfires of war. Ask yourself, would you let them in? Well, more than two-thirds of Americans polled by Gallup said no. We should keep them out. But guess what? This was not a recent poll regarding the Syrian refugee crisis. This Gallup poll was taken in 1939. After the highly publicized events of Kristallnacht, a violent pogrom where Jewish businesses and synagogues were shattered and burned to the ground all over Germany, those 10,000 children seeking refuge on our shores were mostly Jews. We were the other. That same year, 1939, the New York Chamber of Commerce gave scholarly legitimacy to the fear and mistrust of aliens by publishing a paper from the prestigious Carnegie Institute. It was called Conquest 
by immigration. It reinforced anti-immigrant stereotypes and blamed them for the country's ills, claiming they were competition with real Americans for jobs, that they had a greater tendency towards criminality, and that they would only enlarge our relief rules. Sound familiar? Despite public sentiment against Jewish immigration, in 1942, a seven-year-old refugee was among the lucky ones granted asylum here in the United States from the horrors of Nazi Germany. He is now 81 years old, and he has lived an exemplary life as a proud American, a very successful businessman, a generous philanthropist, a patriarch of a large family. And this year, he was presented with the Eisenhower Award, the highest recognition a civilian can receive for their contribution to America's national security. Though he is one example, just one, this refugee, like so many others, has made America immeasurably better, stronger, and safer. And I'm also proud to say that this man is our longtime central member, Mr. Bob Belfer. It's hard to imagine that most Americans rejected admitting Bob and others like him into our country. But we don't have to imagine it, because we're doing it again. In the last few years, over 65 million people have been displaced worldwide from their homes due to conflict and war. That is one out of every 120 people on the planet. It's the largest humanitarian crisis since World War II. What are we doing about it? Recent Gallup polls show that the majority of Americans want to close our doors to these homeless, tempest-tossed, seeking our shores. This summer, a picture of a young Syrian boy went viral. I guess there was something about the eyes of that dust-covered boy that stopped us, that allowed us to see him as human. That boy is not a threat. That stranger is us. And when we hear someone urging us to build barriers, when we hear someone demonizing the other, is it not our moral obligation to remember that we were chosen for something different? Our Jewish memory demands we use our voice to be the world's conscience. In the midst of too much ugly rhetoric this summer, the most prominent voice of the American conscience was not a Jew, but an observant Muslim, Kazir Khan. He doesn't talk or look or eat or pray like the majority of Americans. He came to America for its promise of freedom and democracy. His son, Captain Humayun Khan, joined America's armed forces to protect these values and died defending them, a hero in Iraq. I heard Kazir Khan's story like many of you this summer at the Democratic Convention. I saw him hold up the United States Constitution, and he reminded me of what it truly means to be an American, one who doesn't simply accept our values, 
but who marvels in them, who embraces them and teaches them and is even willing to make the greatest sacrifice for them. He's not Jewish, but he spoke in our prophetic tradition. He reminded us that God's liberty is to be to the ends of the earth. But Kazir Khan's words are also in the American tradition of Hamilton and Jefferson and Kennedy and Reagan. In his presidential farewell address in 1989, Ronald Reagan recalled the pilgrim John Winthrop's aspiration of America and shared this vision. The shining city upon a hill was God-blessed and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. And if there had to be walls, the walls will have doors. And the doors will be open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. And she's still a beacon. She's still a magnet for all who must have freedom. For all the pilgrims from all the lost places who are hurtling through the darkness towards home. And I'm pretty sure Ronald Reagan didn't think of that as a Jewish speech. But in describing an America open to the stranger, open to the other, President Reagan too was speaking in the tradition of Isaiah. For me, Reagan's message was not political. It was principled. And this sermon is not primarily about the election or even the refugee crisis. It is about reaffirming a moral worldview that is deeply Jewish at its core. Our God has given every person and every tribe a light within, a divine spark. If we fan that flame with fear and hatred, it will become a consuming fire. And if we hoard that light, cultivating it only for ourselves, only for our tribe, it will ultimately fade out. But if we take up our unique light as a tribe that knows the heart of the stranger, who will stand up for the other and love the stranger and shed light where it is most needed, then we will live up to the prophetic call to be an Orlegoyim, a light to the nations, starting with our own great nation. We Jews were chosen for this. All the rest is commentary. Let us go and live it. Shana Tovah. <laughs>